Go to Matthew chapter 6. So we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together, and we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 34. take a second to pray. Father, thank you for letting us worship you. Sing hallelujah to you, Lord. You're worthy of our praise. God, you made that so clear that you're so worthy of our praise. Thank you, Lord. God, uh, as I look around at my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, I, I long so, so deeply, Lord, that your church would be built up, encouraged, Lord, that we would be comforted where we need comfort and rebuked where we need rebuke, that you would give us instruction from heaven, and God, none of these things we can, we can long for it all we want, Lord, but none of these things will come to pass. None of these things will happen unless you build the house, unless you, Holy Spirit, move in power through your word and open our eyes to glorious things in your law. So God, we bring before you, we confess before you our utter helplessness Lord, unless you move in power, nothing helpful will happen here. But God, we ask you please to come. Open our eyes to your word. Speak to us, Lord. Address us. We come bowed down. Right now, Lord, I pray that you would fill this room, fill this place with hearts bowed down, submissive to you. Lord Jesus, you're our king. Let us hear your word as happy, loyal, submissive subjects to our king. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've said many times, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a really clear distinction of this is what God's people are. This is what God's people are look like as opposed to the outside world. So the Sermon on the Mount draws a real clear distinction, a real, re really clear line between God's church, the citizens of his kingdom, and those of the kingdoms of this world. And one of the ways you can see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount is the way it talks about the Gentiles or the nations, the, the pagan world. Uh, and there are several different instances of this. So I'll give you an example. In the passage we're going to be in today, uh, we see it in verse 31 and 32, chapter 6, verse 31 and 32, where he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And we'll come back to that, but look at this. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father, so, 
You see that line he's drawing? That's the way the Gentiles think. That's the way the Gentiles act, but not those that have God as their heavenly father. And it does that in other places as well. So if you, you can look at chapter 6, verse 7, if you remember this. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. That's what the Gentiles are like. That's what the world's like. The pagan world's like that, not citizens of the kingdom of God. You see it again, chapter 5, verse, verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? <laughs> you know, if you just love the people that, that love you back, aren't you just acting like the world, like Gentiles? If you love your enemies, that's another story. And so you have this line being drawn throughout the Sermon on the Mount that God's people are not like the godless pagan world that's all around us. And we see this in other places in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says this about the church, that the church of God is those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart in Christ, and called to be saints. Set apart in Christ, sanctified in Christ, and called to be set apart, called to be holy, called to be saints. We see the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the popular verse, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What, what partnership has light with darkness and the people of God with pagans? It's that idea. And we see this really clearly on the, in the Summer of the Mount. So if you want to know, if, you, if you're thinking, okay, what does that look like? What is God's people, the church, citizens of the kingdom, uh, as opposed to the Gentile world, what does that look like? Well, go read the Sermon on the Mount. Go read Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, and you're getting this description of the people of God. And we know that's the way we're supposed to take it. Literally, the very first verse of the Sermon on the Mount tells us it's to the disciples of Jesus. And the very last verse of the Sermon on the Mount tells us we're supposed to sit under the Sermon on the Mount like we're sitting under a king that's speaking with authority. We're supposed to obey these words. Disciples are supposed to obey these words. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, um, as you've heard me say many, many times, is showing us a Christian counterculture. You got all the cultures of the world, but here in the Sermon on the Mount is the Christian counterculture. And it literally touches every piece of your life. Every area of your life is touched by this expectation of Christ and the Christian counterculture. I want you to think about this. Because King Jesus puts his finger, his authoritative finger, wherever he wants to put it, we need to read the Sermon on the Mount with a heart to just, yes, Lord, we believe you. Yes, Lord, we want to obey you. He puts his authoritative finger wherever he wants, and he puts it everywhere in the Sermon on the on the mount. He leads us as he pleases and, and as he wills. Now, think with me. If you're thinking through the Sermon on the Mount, if you're just looking at the different examples that are there. If you go to the very beginning, you remember the Beatitudes, right? Jesus puts his authoritative finger on how uh, on your humility, the poor in spirit, the meek. He puts his finger on how you feel, what you desire, hunger and thirst for righteousness and calls us into those sort of things. 
We get verse 13 and 14, and you see that distinction where, where the world is, is, is described to us as darkness and as rotten, but the church is the light in that darkness, the salt that preserves in that rottenness. We're called to be that. Verse 17, we're people, he puts his finger on this, that we're a people that love the law of God. We love the word of God. We want to obey God's word. It's God's people. He puts his finger on several things, on anger. On anger. It's not just, um, well, you're just an angry person and so nothing you can do about it. No, no, he puts his finger there and charges you some stuff about anger. He puts his finger on lust, on your marriage as he talks about divorce, on the words that you speak, the words coming out of your mouth, you being a man, a woman of your word, your oaths. He puts his finger on that, on, how, on the way you love your enemies. I mean, everything. Chapter 6, he gets into, we should be a generous and praying and fasting people. And not hypocrites, not doing that to be seen by men, but doing it just to be seen by the Father. So several examples of King Christ putting his authoritative finger on every area of our life. This is what my, God, my people are to look like and are to strive for as opposed to the Gentiles. As opposed to the world. And in our passage today, so we're in verse 25 through 34, King Jesus puts his finger on an area of life that the modern world, living in this sort of modern man, living in this psychologized world, says he ought not to put his finger there. And specifically, I'm talking about the area of anxiety, worry, anxious thoughts, anxious living. He puts his finger right there in our passage today on that issue. You know, and it's almost like modern man has this mindset. You know, Jesus used to have something to say about that. That used to be under his authority. But now, you know, we've progressed so much. We've advanced so much. We're so smart. We know what to do about that issue of anxiety and worry and fretfulness nowadays. Grace Community Church, I want to encourage you, and this is really clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ Jesus, King Jesus, has limitless authority in your life. His authority in our lives is unlimited. There's nothing that it does not touch. He is King Jesus, Lord of all. And we bow to him in everything. In our passage today, he is flexing his authority in the area of anxiety. Brothers and sisters, trust him. We're about to read it. Trust him in what he says. Submit to his word as he, afflicts, he flexes his authority in this area of your life. Now, there's a lot of professional counselors out there that would have you remove this issue from Jesus' jurisdiction and put it under the jurisdiction of modern psychology. If that doesn't belong to Christ, it belongs to something else. And listen to me. Don't, don't let it happen. Trust the Lord. Submit to him in this area of anxiety that we're about to read about in just a moment. Submit it to the light of his word. Let's read it. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious 
about your life, what you eat, or what you would drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now our passage today starts with the word therefore. Therefore. So what I want us to try to do is to see what's on both sides of the therefore. What's on the front side of the therefore and what's on the back side, our passage today, of the therefore and then try to understand how they connect. Okay, so I want us to take some time to get the plain sense of what's on both sides of the therefore and then try to understand how they connect. Now on the front side of the therefore, and this should be easier for us to, to get quickly, because this is the passage that we were in last week, is verse 19 through 24. Let's read it for, for a refresher. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's about your treasures. Your treasure on earth, your treasure in heaven. What is your greatest treasure? What do you value? Keep going. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, and Dustin explained to us singular, if your eye is Singular, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, other scriptures, greedy, covetous eye, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what's the plain sense of this passage? It's this, brothers and sisters, make God your highest treasure. That's what the first thing you said here. Make him your highest treasure. Make God, number two, your singular focus. He's your singular focus. And make God your only supreme master. 
Your high, what's your highest treasure? What's your singular focus? And who's your supreme Who's your supreme master? We learn from these verses that Christianity is an all-in religion. It's all-in. All-in. It's whoever doesn't forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's, it's all-in. If you try to dabble in Christianity, you damn your soul. It's Matthew 10, 39. If, someone, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake in the gospel, you'll find it. You'll save it. Lose your life for Christ. He's, he's, he takes priority, highest treasure, singular focus, supreme master in verses 19 through 24. Now, what does Jesus put forward as enemy number one to these priorities in your life? What does he put forward as enemy number one? Well, that, those verses say he puts forward earthly treasure, treasure on earth. He puts forward a greedy or covetous eye, that bad eye, that greedy, covetous eye, not singularly focused on Christ. And he puts forward money. You're either going to serve God or money. So overall, what's, this, what's enemy number one? It's your money, your wealth, your riches, your possessions, materialism, stuff. Enemy number one. So you see in God as your highest treasure, singular focus, and supreme master. This is about priorities. What takes first place in your life? What, what has the highest place in your values and your affections and your focus, your gaze? What has the highest place in your service and obedience and what makes your decisions? Does God have the highest place? And that's what he's calling us into in this passage. Now, I want you to hold that in your mind. Hold verse 19 through 24 in your mind on the front side of the therefore. Now, what's on the back side? What's on the back side of the therefore? Verse 25 through 34. Okay. What I want to do for clarity's sake is I want to try to, and I really want to do this quickly, but I want to try to break down verse 25 through 34, the back side of the therefore, into five quick categories just to try to get the plain sense of it. Okay, so we're going to read through it again a little slower, and I just want you to understand what's on both sides of the therefore, okay? So, so five categories to understand verse 25 through 34. Number one is just verse 25. Look at it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So he says, don't worry about two things there. Don't worry about your life. And about your body. And he kind of describes what he means. Don't worry about your life. Life's more than food and drink. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body. What he means is what you're going to put on, what you wear. Don't worry about your life and your body. Don't, don't be anxious over your life and your body. That's number one. Number two is verse 26 in 27, where he really gives you some argument of why you shouldn't worry about your life. He's going to get to the body in a minute, but why you shouldn't worry about your life. Look at verse 26 and 27 again. Look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, excuse me, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Okay? So think about what he says there. Look at the birds. But the point's not to do bird watching. The point is through the birds to see the hand of your father. And he feeds them. He takes care of their life. Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Now the pagan world you, you live in is, is moving more and more towards nah. You're not an image bearer of God, so your life's no more valuable. But the scripture teaches you're an image bearer of God. Your life is more valuable than the birds. He feeds them. Won't he feed you? Why are you being anxious? Don't be anxious. Catching that? And then the, the, the verse 27 there. By being anxious, you can't add a single hour to the span of your life. Don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. Okay, number three. Number three, he's going to, it's verse 28 through 30. And he's going to, so, so he said, he started off, don't be anxious about your life and your body. And he just said why you shouldn't be anxious about your life. Now he's going to say why you shouldn't be anxious about your body. Look at verse 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon looking all beautiful there, not like the flowers God creates, not like the lilies in the field. But, so listen to the reason, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, it's just done away with, will he not much more clothe you? Don't worry about your body, will he not much more clothe you, oh you, of little faith? Number four, so understanding the passage, number four, you really get the main exhortation right here, okay? Verse 31 through 33, you get the main exhortation. As he comes back, verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. He repeats it again. He already said in verse 25, he's going to repeat it again. Therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Your anxiety affects your words. You say stuff a lot. Talk about certain things. A lot when you're anxious over them. If we don't be anxious saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. Here's the main exhortation. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You're not like the Gentile world. You don't have to worry about these things. Seek God first. Seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. And all those other things that the world has to worry about, they'll be added to you. God will take care of you now. Don't be anxious about that. you got a father. And then number five, verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, so what's not being given to us here is a Christian life without trouble. Right? That, that just told us Christian life has trouble. But it says here, sufficient for the day it's its own trouble. Your life, your life can't be without trouble, but it can be without anxieties over those troubles. But it will be full of trouble. So what I'm trying to get us to see is just clarity on both sides of that therefore. What's in verse 19 through 24? What's in verse 25 through 34? 
And we're about to move towards how they connect. But before we do that, let me just say a few more. Let me highlight a few more points that I think will help us get oriented and understand more clearly, brings clarity to what's on the backside of this therefore. Let me just highlight a few points, okay? First, number one, the word anxious is repeated six times in that little passage. I'm sure you heard it, right? Anxious, anxious, anxious. Six times in this passage. Obviously, obviously anxiety is a focus of the passage. You know what anxiety means. Worrying. Fret, fretfulness. You know what it means to live, to live and feel as if God's not in control. All of us have felt that. All of us understand anxiety. So highlight that. So focus on anxiety here. Second, there's six commands in this passage. So if you just if you read through the passage like we have twice and you just count the commands, there's six commands in this passage. And three of them, verse 25, 31, and 34, they all say, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. It's repeated three times in verse 25, 31, and 34. The other commands, verse 26, the command is look at the birds. But again, the point is so you'll see God and not be anxious. Verse 28 is the, another command is consider the lilies, consider the flowers. But the point is so you'll see the flowers, see the hand of God and not be anxious. And in the sixth command, our foundational command with a promise beside it is verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about that stuff. God, your father will take care of that other stuff. He'll add that stuff to you. But seek first the kingdom of God. I hope you're getting a feel for just what's in this passage. I want you to see it clearly. All right, third, a third thing to highlight, brothers and sisters, is that anxiety is sin. I'm... I don't know if you can get much clearer than that. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. And we say, well, I'm, gonna, I'm anxious. Okay, you disobey him. The Lord said, don't do that. So we need to understand this fretfulness, this anxious living as a sin. H.B. Charles, in one of his sermons, he said it like this. Chronic worry is more than a personality type. A, psych a psychological disorder or physiological problem, at its root, anxiety is a spiritual issue. And brothers and sisters, not only is it sin, but it's become a respectable sin. You know what I mean by that? Jer Jerry Bridges bought a, wrote a book called Respectable Sins. It's one of those sins that we don't even view as a sin, that the world says it's okay. And not only is it okay, this sin can almost even be seen as a really good thing. Oh, that really anxious mother, she's just a great mom. I remember I started a, a, a job one time at a box plant. And I was at this box plant, and, and a guy on a tow motor, he could tell I was new, and he pulls up beside me, and he says, he says, hey, man, walk fast and look worried, and you'll be all right. Almost like it's a virtue. Just look worried, so you, you're doing something. It's become a respectable sin, which makes it really, really dangerous because we might tend to have it in our hearts and walk in anxious living and feel like we don't need to do anything about it. Okay? Now, fourth thing I want to highlight again, I'm just aiming at clarity here. I want us to understand the passage. Fourth thing I want to highlight is anxiety at its root is a faith issue. It's a trust in God issue. 
Now, that's really clear. Look at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is allowed, tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Listen, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? At the heart of the anxiety issue is a faith that's of trust in your God. Faith in your God. Lean against him. Rest in your God. It's a trust issue. It's what you're, it's what you're doing when you're, if you're not trusting in God over certain things, you'll be anxious about those things. The problem of anxiety is rooted in unbelief. This passage calls us away from anxiety and positively calls us toward trust in your God. Have faith in him. Did you know who he is? God's people are not an anxious people. They're to fight. And of course we will. We all know that. We have to fight anxieties and be a people of faith, a people that trust our God. Okay. I want you to hold both sides of the therefore. You got verse 19 through 24? Okay, and verses 25 through 36. Try to hold both of those in your mind. God's got all your loyalty. He's your highest treasure, your singular focus, your supreme master. Therefore, when you got this passage, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness. Try to... What's the connection here between these two passages? And I want to mention to you three connections between these two passages, okay? Three connections. I think it'll help you. First connection is this, that both passages deal with your priorities. Okay, like I just said, think about it. Think about what it just said. Your highest treasure in God, your singular focus, your supreme master. This is what he calls us to. Therefore, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. That first is not just about uh, uh, a chronological order. It's the first. It's about priority. Seek him above all else. Make him your primary thing that you seek is God and his kingdom and his righteousness. Highest treasure, supreme master, singular focus. Therefore, seek him first. Seek his kingdom first. That's a connection between these two passages. A second connection. Remember what enemy number one was, right? If you read the front side of the therefore, enemy number one was earthly treasure, a covetous eye, money, wealth, materialism, stuff, possessions on this earth. Enemy number one, to make you lose your loyalty to God. And then, therefore, when you cut over into our passage we're in today, it says, don't be anxious about your life, about your body, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Stuff. Earthly stuff. Possessions. One more connection, and I, and I think this third connection really is the most important. This is the one I really want you to grab. I want you to understand this connection from verse 19 through 24 to verse 25 through 34. If verse 19 through 24 is about loyalty, loyalty to God, highest treasure, if that's what it's about, 
You got to serve God. You can't serve God in money. You got to serve. Okay, if that's what the first part is about, loyalty to God. When Jesus crosses the therefore, what does he put his finger on that will steal away your loyalty? What does he put his finger on? And you would think he would put his finger on just rampant greed, a bank robber. Just horrible, just horrible greed and covetous that everybody can see. And instead, what he puts his finger on is what? Anxieties, even over necessities. Man, I said it was a respectable sin before. How about now? You say anxiety, he's calling you away from anxieties even over your necessities? Man, that's a respectable sin. You, man, you can't be anxious about these things, brother. What do you mean, man? I'm trying to put food on the table. I'm being a good man. Anxieties even over necessities. I want you to understand this, that this is, this makes our passage today very serious. And to disregard our passage today about anxiety is very dangerous. This is the thing Jesus puts his finger on. And he says, look, you know what can dethrone God from having the highest treasure in your life and being the singular focus of your life and being your, your only supreme master in your life? You know what can dethrone him? Anxieties over necessities. Don't be anxious about your life, about your body, about tomorrow. Quit being anxious about these things. It makes these things, or at least makes us realize these things are very, very dangerous. Brothers and sisters, do you feel warned about anxieties of this life? Do you feel warned? And if you do, good, I want you to feel warned. I, I, want, I want you to feel so warned that these respectable sins no longer are respectable in your heart. That they lose all respectability because of Christ's words. I want you to feel warned. Now, we're about to get practical, really practical. We're going to talk about, from this passage, what does Jesus give us in this passage of three ways to kill anxiety? Three ways to kill anxiety. Three major points that Jesus gives here about killing anxiety. Number one, brothers and sisters, trust God. That's it, trust him. Now, I'm going to get more detail, but, but I don't want to leave there too fast. How do you kill anxiety? Trust God. As trust in God increases, anxieties decrease. As faith in God is awakened, anxieties go to sleep. Trust God. Now, that's seen really, really clear, right, in verse 30. Oh, you have little faith, right? He's showing you. That's the root of it. It's a, it's a faith problem. Oh, you of little faith. Now, but some of you might say back, and it makes sense, you might say, well, I don't have a trust God switch. How do, I, how do I increase my faith? How do I begin to trust God more and more? How do I increase my faith in God? And that's a good question. And I want to try to answer that, and it gets even more practical. You have to get your eyes on the Father. You have got to get your eyes on the Father, who he is, what he's like, 
what he's done, what he promises. Just get your eyes on God, his word, his promises, what he's like. And the more you see him, the more your faith will increase. Get into his word and see who the father is. The more you see your God, the more anxieties die. The more you see him, the more you'll trust him. It's really, a, it's really a principle that I need everybody here to grab. The fight for faith is a fight to see. You understand that? A fight for increased faith is, what do you do? No, no increase the faith switch. What do you do? you got to get, you got to see him. I need to see him more. I need to see more of God, more of God, more of Christ, more of the Father. What's he like? And the more you see him, the more you see him, that faith will increase. That trust will increase. Faith will awaken and anxieties will die. We got to get our eyes on the anxiety killing worthy object of faith, which is God himself. Get your eyes on the Lord. Now, here's what's so sweet. Jesus helps us do this. Just like Dustin said last week, like, like the Lord can just lay it out and say, do this. All right, I'm done. Do it or not. But instead, he, Jesus actually leans in. And I, I, here's what I want to happen right now. I really want you to turn the corner right now, okay? Um, I've told you about what Jesus says about anxiety. We're talking about anxiety as sin, and all that's true. But what you have right here, what we're about to describe, is Jesus wants to help you get your eyes on the Father. This is, this is kindness from your God. This is kindness from your Savior. It's beautiful. It's like, it's like he's putting his, it's like a father putting his hand under his son's chin. I know you're anxious. Look up. Don't you see? Don't you see what your father's like? It's a sweet thing that the Lord's doing here. So how does Jesus, how does Jesus in this passage help us do that? Well, he, he draws our attention to the heavenly father. Now you can see that in verse 26 and 32. And actually, I said it wrong. It's not the Heavenly Father. He says, your Heavenly Father. Verse 26. Verse 32. Your Heavenly Father. So he's, he's going to, how, how's he going to increase your faith and kill your anxiety? He draws your attention to, you have a Heavenly Father. Now look, that's a gospel weapon to kill anxiety. It is a gospel weapon to kill anxiety. I want you to think about this for a minute. Who is your father? Who's your father? Who's your heavenly father? And how did he become your heavenly father? How did all this happen? You see, we were all without God, without saving, without Christ in this world. And then the Bible says, by the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been brought near. But in our being brought near, Jesus dies for our sins so that we can be forgiven. But it's more than that. He dies for our sins so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And then Jesus' righteousness is, is, is imputed to us so that we are declared righteous, even though we're, we're not practically righteous. But it's more than that. He adopts you into his family. You are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3. You become a, you become a son of his. Adopted. So who's your father? God is your father now because of Jesus. And Jesus looks at a people of weak faith, tested with anxieties, 
And he draws their attention to, don't, don't you know your heavenly father? Your heavenly father? It's a gospel weapon to kill anxiety. Now this is a reminder to us of why anxiety is such a heinous sin. What does anxiety say? He's not a good father. He's not trustworthy. He's not trustworthy. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. It's a reminder to us that the fatherless world that we live in, the pagan world we live in, they have every reason to be anxious. They have no heavenly father. And they not only should be anxious about the things of this life, but about eternity. They're going to die one day, face judgment without a sacrifice, without Christ, and go to hell forever. But not God's people. Your heavenly father, Jesus says. Lift your chin. Your heavenly father. Don't be anxious about this life. Your heavenly father. You've been adopted. Get your eyes on the father. Increase your faith. Kill your anxiety. Think about what he's, what he's doing. J Jesus says, look at the birds. You see, what he, see that kindness? Again, it's not about bird watching. Okay? He's saying, he's, look. Uh, increasing your faith. The fight of faith is a fight to see. And you're mainly seeing that in God's word, who he is. And then here Jesus says, look. Look at the birds. Look, look, at, the, look at the flowers. Look at them. And he wants you to see the hand of the Father through those things. Look how he feeds them. Look how he clothes them. Look, trust him. Trust him. He'll take care of you. Trust him. I love that, that little phrase in verse 32 where he says, Your father, The Gentiles seek after these things. They have no father. Rightly so, they seek after these things. But not you. You don't have to be anxious about these. Why? Your father knows that you need them. Isn't that a sweet phrase? Here you are in Christ, saved by his grace, adopted, a son, daughter of God. He says, your father knows exactly what you need. What do you need? It's not hidden from your father. He knows. So getting practical, trust God. Get your eyes on God to increase your faith and kill anxiety. That's number one. Number two, brothers and sisters, how to kill anxiety. We need to see the foolishness of anxiety. We need to see the foolishness of anxiety. And so what I'm getting at here is anxiety is not only offensive. It's not just when you're anxious over this life in disobedience to Jesus' word. It's not just offensive like uh, you're saying God's not trustworthy. Okay? But it's also foolish. It's stupid. It doesn't help you at all. Your anxiety ever helped you any? And Jesus helps us to see that. Okay, look, look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Can, you know, you're worried about your life. Have, through your anxieties, have you ever added anything to the end of your life? No, you've probably taken something away from your life. But you never added anything to your life. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's helping us to see it. My children, 
Oh, you have little faith. Wake up. Anxiety's pointless. It's fruitless. Trust in me. It's folly. H.P. Charles said, uh, anxiety is like chewing gum. There's a lot of motion and no progress. He said, it's like sitting in a rocking chair. It may give you something to do, but it won't, but it won't uh, get you anywhere. It's just foolish. Now, he does the same thing in verse 34. Verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Think about that. You worried about when? Tomorrow? Tomorrow. Uh, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, it's not saying that Christians live a life, uh, just troubleless life. No, no. Uh, you remember in Acts it says, you must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So we have troubles. We don't kill anxiety by convincing ourselves there's no troubles in this life, but by seeing how great God is and how foolish anxiety is. So there'll be troubles, but think about this. Worried about, think about how foolish it is. It's folly. Worrying about things you can't control. Can you control tomorrow? Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, today's troubles are never too heavy until you grab tomorrow's trouble and you pile them on. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't be worried about tomorrow. He says here. It's foolish. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Listen. Think about the fight against anxiety as a cultivation battle. Okay? You got to cultivate this. This is not something you just, in the moment of anxiety, now I got to do something. No, no. You need to cultivate a life of constantly, day after day, looking to the Father. Day after day, reading God's word and seeing who he is and seeing what he's like and being reminded of his promises. Day after day, looking at God's word and being reminded of the foolishness of anxiety. And as you cultivate in that life, it will help protect you against those circumstances that tend to bring anxiety. And maybe in those moments, you'll trust the Lord. Or you'll be anxious and then you'll remember and trust the Lord. It's a cultivation battle. But there are things to do in the moment. In that moment. For whatever reason, in that moment when anxiety comes over this life, your body, or about tomorrow, in that moment, you got to turn the heat up. You've been cultivating a life of trusting God and looking to God, looking to the Father. Now you got to turn the heat up and you got to preach to yourself in those moments. You start to feel that anxiety. It's right there. It's right on the verge of taking you over. And read Psalm 42. Read Psalm 43 where they're literally preaching to themselves. My soul... Why are you so disturbed within me? Hope in God. He's preaching to himself. Preach the Father to yourself. Preach his attributes to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the foolishness of anxiety to yourself. But fight it in the moment. Turn the heat up. I had a situation recently. I want to read this verse to you because it really helped me. A situation recently where I was... Anxious and tempted to go deeper into anxiety. And it was over slander. Slander. You know, God's word says that slander can poison the minds. So I'm not typically worried about the actual slander themselves. I want to pray for them and ask God. But, but, but the, the anxiety can be over the effect of the slander and poisons other people's minds by 
us or our church or whatever. And I was tempted to be worried about that, and I read Psalm 37. And if you're familiar with Psalm 37, this is how God helped me. Uh, it, say, it says it like four or five times. Don't fret. Don't fret. Don't fret. Don't fret. Another way to say, don't be anxious. Don't worry. And, and listen to this. This is the help. This is, this is in the moment God gave me help. Look at it. Verse 31. I mean, chapter 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself over evildoers. Ooh, it was so perfect for my situation. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desire of your, of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not. Fret not yourself. Over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, fret not yourself. It only it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Two more verses, listen. This, this is where it really got me. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs. I thought I'm just going to laugh with the Lord. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. So cultivate a life of seeing who the Father is and therefore faith increasing in Him and seeing what the Word says about the foolishness of anxiety, cultivate that so when these anxieties come, and when they come, fight! Turn the heat up. All right, number three, how to kill anxieties. Number three. This one's going to sound funny to you, so just go with me. Prioritize your anxieties. And it might make more sense if I say it like this. Kill earthly anxieties with holy anxieties. Prioritize, and this is in the passage. I'm not making this in just my wisdom. It's in the passage. Prioritize your anxieties. Kill earthly anxieties with holy anxieties. Now let me try to explain that. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 and 32. Just notice something. Therefore do not be anxious, saying... What should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. What happened in that passage is what's equal here is um, be anxious and seek after are, are equivalent here. Right? So think, about, think about that. D don't be anxious. Man, for the Gentiles are anxious over these things. But what it says is the Gentiles seek after these things. So don't be anxious. Uh, uh, the Gentiles are anxious over these things. They seek after these things. So our understanding of seeking after something in this passage is to be anxious about something. Now, now here's what's interesting. Then notice, think about what that says about the next verse, verse 33. But seek first. Remember our definition. Seek first the kingdom of God. Be anxious about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first. Uh, be, have holy anxieties. About the kingdom, about God and his kingdom and his righteousness. These are holy anxieties. Now, I think it's clear from God's word that not all anxieties are bad. 
2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, Paul says, What comes upon me daily? My deep anxieties for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's not made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? He had this holy anxiety about the advancement of the kingdom of God and the health of his bride. 1 Corinthians 7, it has the phrase in there, he's anxious about the things of the Lord. Anxious about the things of the Lord, how he might please the Lord. Those are holy anxieties. Holy anxieties. And we're told right here, to, see, we're told, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, and then have holy anxieties. So, so a third way to kill your anxiety is to prioritize holy anxieties. Have holy anxieties that swallow up all your earthly anxieties. It says here, seek first in verse 33. That's present imperative. It means constant preoccupation with seeking God and his kingdom. Constant preoccupation with with these holy anxieties. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Think about that. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is being just a mind and a heart and a life just full of things about the king, King Jesus, and his reign in my life and my holiness and and drawing close to him and, and being more like him and his rule and reign in this world, the gospel going out to all nations and in our city, people being saved, coming into the kingdom. Come on, you know what this means. You know what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Holy, holy anxieties. Now, this is the same thing. If you remember, we saw this in the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? When we were in the Lord's Prayer together. Um, should you pray for your daily bread? Yeah, of course you could. He told you to. So when you hear, don't, you know, you know, don't be anxious about your life, doesn't mean, well, I guess you can't pray for your, you know, something to eat. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't mean that. Jesus told us, uh, pray for your daily bread. Pray for your daily bread, right? So you're supposed to. But remember the Lord's Prayer, the priorities that were there? You had three Godward petitions and then three manward petitions, and the Godward petitions came first. And so your prayer should be prioritized like this. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that takes first place. Those are holy anxieties. Kill worldly anxiety with godly anxieties. Now, here's something I want to say. Let me be clear here. Make sure you understand me. The answer to the problem of anxious living, the answer to the problem of anxious living is not, not irresponsible, carefree, hippie living. If that's you, if you've been listening to me the whole time and you're just irresponsible, carefree, hippie going, man, that sermon ain't for me. I don't worry about nothing. I literally pray that you would not receive comfort. So if that's you, friend, Do not feel that comfort. Do not feel that comfort. I pray just that statement stopped you. 
And one way you can know that that's not right, you do not combat anxieties by hippie living. No, no. You combat anxieties by holy anxieties. God's people care about a lot of things, but they care about the main things. They seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And they trust, man, my father will take care of the rest. In fact, Jesus said, I could just pray. God, give me this day my daily bread, and the Lord would hear me. Be so occupied with the things of God and his kingdom that the worries of the world fall away. Okay, final exhortation. Last thing I want to say to you quickly, just to close this out. There's a discouraging lie out there. You need to know it. A really, really discouraging lie. And it's this mindset that says, I'm just hardwired this way. I'm, I'm, just, an, I'm just an anxious person. I'm just hardwired this way, so there's no hope for me. I just got no way out. I'm hardwired this way. Nothing I can do about it. And that mindset gets into a lot of things, right? Like, like people that walked in drunkenness used to be called drunkards, but now, well, they're just wired this way. People that walked in sexual morality, they used to be called fornicators or adulterers, but now they're just, they're just sex addicts. They're just hardwired this way. And like everything in life is getting pulled in that direction. of it's just, it's just who you are, and you know why that's a discouraging lie? Because it means there's no hope for you. It's just what you're like. You're just an anxious person. No need to try to do anything about it. It's what you always be. But what I want you to walk away with is gospel hope. Think about what the gospel accomplishes. Christ Jesus died for sinful, wicked, wretched people like us. And the sins that we have are forgiven in Christ, wiped off the record. And not only that, but anybody that puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. God's word says. They're given a new heart. A new heart. Not that old heart of stone. But a new heart is given to those that put their hope in Christ. And not only that. You didn't used to have an intercessor. A mediator. Now you have Jesus as your intercessor. That always lives to make intercession for you. Now think about that. Is there hope? Against anxious living? Yes. And any sin for that matter. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoners free. I know the song. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoners free. Even from this that we've been talking about this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make that so evident in your church that you have broken the power of canceled sin through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you've set prisoners free. And God, we feel that freedom in Christ to hate sin, to walk away from sin, and even this sin, Lord, of anxious living. God, help us to obey. Help us to not be anxious about our life about our body, about tomorrow. 
God, give us a heart full of desires to seek first you, you and your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us, Lord, please. God, I pray that you would help us to cultivate a life of looking to you, Lord, and knowing who you are and resting in you when things get hard. And God, help us in those moments to have the wisdom and strength, those moments when anxiety seems to be knocking at the door. Give us the wisdom and the strength, Lord, to fight, to remember, to preach to ourselves, Lord. And God, I pray that you would make Grace Community Church a trusting, faith-filled people and not an anxious people. And Lord, I pray that our loyalties would not be stolen, that you would remain at the very, at the very top, Lord, as our highest treasure, our singular focus, Lord, and our supreme master. Stay there, Lord. Don't let us be pulled away. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen.